You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'm speaking with Jeremy Lassen. He's the editor of Nightshade Books. Thank you for speaking with me, Jeremy. My pleasure, Rick. Jeremy, let's talk about the year that was and maybe a bit about the year that we trust it will be. Uh, one of the things that uh, I think really made a, a big impact on the field of uh speculative fiction was zombies they really came to the forefront uh, this last year uh, after a long struggle yeah they sure did it was a natural growth of the genre it seemed to start out and hit big in short fiction and the, the couple of novels that really hit um world war z kind of laid the groundwork and it seems like everybody and their mother has now got a zombie novel out to or zombie anthology or something. Well, tell us a little bit about putting together your zombie anthology. Well, my zombie anthology, I like to think, was, was one of the early ones mm-hmm. that kind of helped define the, the, the modern zombie movement, I guess. But um, it started out actually at um, Wiscon um, right after World War Z had just come out in hardcover, mm-hmm. and Ted Chang came up to me, and he was asking me, because zombie stuff this was about three or four years ago now, it just started hitting big, and he was like, what's the Bible of zombie fiction? And I told him, well, it's not It's not really a novel. It's those uh, Skip and Spectre anthologies from the mid-'80s, uh, The Book of the Dead and Book of the Dead 2. Mark Ziesing Publishing. Mark Ziesing Publishing, yep, exactly. And um, they've been really influential on me. A lot of the early, you know, really cutting-edge horror stuff had come out of those books. But it was the, those books were the first time that authors had sat down and written explicitly in a George Romero-esque zombie future. Um, and I came back from that convention, and I was, I was talking to my business partner and said, we should, do, we should reprint those books. And he was like, no, we shouldn't. We should just take the good stories and get a bunch of other good stories. And that's how, that's how The Living Dead was um, born. As it were, um, we called up John Joseph Adams, and he had a real good eye for uh, putting together retrospective collections. And um, he was game; he was a zombie fan himself. And so, we ended up doing uh, *The Living Dead*, and that came out, um, gosh, almost uh, at the end of uh, 2008, I guess. And it's continued to sell strong. And seems like there's been a, a, a handful of copycat anthologies that's come out since then. But, um, you know, more, more power to them. There's a lot of zombie stories out there that, you know, should be seen and told. Uh, so, and tell the other, I think, uh, kind of uh, subgenre that got a lot of uh, attention, and justly so, is the apocalypse genre. So, and you, you were there, too. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, Wastelands, um, John Joseph Adams came to us, and this was before, well, The Road had just won a, a Pulitzer, and... Um, but the movie obviously hadn't been out yet, and he was like, there hasn't really been an apocalypse anthology since um, since Martin Greenberg's um, Beyond Armageddon. And this anthology, this, this anthology that he proposed to us, kind of collected up the best, um, you know, apocalypse fiction since you know, since 1984, since that that um, that uh, Beyond Armageddon, and it. Um, just really captured the different visions because a lot of people thought you know 
because that, that sub particular subgenre was one of you know the Cold War. It was always a post-nuclear apocalypse, and mm-hmm. um, you know his his anthology really showed that there's a lot of different angles that you can look at, and you know I think obviously not with a bang but a whimper. Not with a bang but a whimper. There was a certainly a lot of whimpering going on over the last year. <laughs> the, the economic meltdown, the, you know, continuing wars. And I think everybody's just in a pessimistic kind of headspace right now. And, and apocalypse fiction really speaks to that. Just, you know, and I think zombie fiction is a, a subgenre of, of that apocalypse fiction. You know, it's kind of like a secular rapture. And it just um, you know, speaks to the zeitgeist right now. There's a lot of, a lot of interesting uh, reflections of today's uh, tumultuous times. And speaking of things which cannot die, and God, I often wish they would, vampire stories, I keep hoping they'll just, like, go out. They never do. You, of course, got or were there this, this year with your um, anthology. Tell us about your anthology. Well, By Blood We Live, um, by, also edited by John Joseph Adams, is a Basically, trying to do for vampires what we did for, for zombies in the apocalypse, which was, you know, kind of look at, you know, as a category, the last 20 years, 25 years or so of vampire fiction and, you know, take out the good stuff. And, you know, it's not all about, you know, weepy-eyed immortal beings who are so frustrated at being immortal and they're, they're not, it's not always that same story, and it's not about star-crossed lovers who just can't get together because one's a zombie hunter and one's a zombie, or, or one's a vampire hunter and one's a vampire. There's there's a lot of different, I mean, as much as we may get tired of vampires, you know, seeing them over and over and over again, they're a really useful cipher, just like zombies have become, they they're, they're they're an archetype that can be used to tell a bunch of different stories. And it was just an opportunity to kind of point that out again, that vampires don't have to be that same thing that we've seen over and over and over again. So I think that's what that anthology did really well. Uh, yes, and one of the while, – while it did do that really well, I, I, it is interesting that these uh, Stephanie Meyer books have – acquired such a huge following and, and you know this kind of uh, super uh, uh, easygoing version of the vampire has kept going but also too there was a huge burst of what we called uh, supernatural romances I mean you you it's taken over the whole romance genre um, whether they're supernatural or have some kind of science fiction spin this is a huge the the Stephanie Meyer is kind of like the popular version of what is a huge huge uh, oh, publishing industry. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Stephanie Meyer's paranormal romance, or you know, is is the tip of that iceberg. It's the thing mm. that is seen that is the most popular. But I mean, the paranormal romance, you know, subgenre has been driving the market for a long time now. I mm-hmm. mean, the even the Inspector Chen books that we published like three or four years ago, I thought were were right on the the borderline of that urban fantasy mm-hmm. paranormal romance it's it's been the big category of mass market fiction and as you say of of the romance um genre for a long time now and i think it's just another reflection of how the fantastic um has kind of suffused all levels of our culture i mean it's it's 
you know, the mundanes know about these things, as it were. <laughs> well, too, if you're going to write about a, a fantasy about sex, why not throw in some extra fantasy in there about immortality or traveling to the future? I just got a paranormal romance. Uh, well, it's actually a science fiction romance. It's part of a five-part series in which five men are catapulted 50 years into the future, and there are immortals, and most people are gone, and every one of these men is, you know, super cool, handsome, and he's got to meet with his woman, and I mean, it's a, but it's kind of an interesting concept for a series, except for, other than the fact that it's obviously only about the sex scenes. Well, I mean, you know, it's, it depends on where your focus is, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I find it really interesting that, you know, these genres that, um, you know, used to be very, very codified, are now kind of crossing over. And mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. romance of genre, which was, you know, extremely codified in the types and lines of romance, you know, the the explicit ones versus the, you know, the touchy-feely ones versus the historical, you know, there's all these lines and boundaries that are being crossed. And that ha that's happening in the, you know, the, the, the commercial fiction as well, you know, the, the extreme categories of, you know, romance or, or mystery, and but also in, you know, the mainstream writing, all these boundaries that used to exist. Um, and I think it's, it's really exciting to see publishers, you know, kind of breaking down those boundaries, but readers who are consistently willing to go across those boundaries. Mm -hmm. You know, it's to see those romance readers going and crossing those boundaries is, is great because it just means more writer, more readers who are willing to experience things outside of you know the boundaries of what they you know thought they might be interested in, and so there's always a way to subvert or you know come at somebody, catch them off guard. Mm -hmm. You know they're picking up that book for the you know for the romance angle, and suddenly you know they're, they're reading, reading Inspector Chen. They're reading Inspector Chen, or they're reading a science fiction novel. Mm -hmm. Um, I, one of the really interesting anthologies last year, um, I haven't been reading a lot of them, but um, it's been a really busy year for Nightshade, but uh, Interfictions, uh, Interfictions 2, um, oh, yeah. by Delia Sherman and uh, edited by Delia Sherman and Chris Barzak was was one of those anthologies that, you know, kind of like takes that as its, as its you know, its stepping stone or its reason why it's there is that kind of crossing of genres. Mm -hmm. It's explicitly about, you know, interstitial writing or this this idea that, you know, genre boundaries are, you know, can be broken down and um, the fruit of that breakdown can be really exciting. One of the, the a novel that breaks down a couple of uh, boundaries that we've been talking about that I thought was one of my more entertaining raids of this year was Guillermo del Toro's uh, novel uh, about vampires. It, it was, I thought, really superb and, and a great combination of um, uh, a vampire novel and an apocalyptic novel kind of rolled back into one and really redid the vampire uh, mythos in a way I thought it was really interesting. Yeah, it's definitely great to see, like you say, new or interesting takes. It's not the same old view of vampires. Um, another another writer who really jumped out at me this year, well, continued to jump out at me, um, Caitlin Kiernan's novel, The Red Tree, mm. was just one of those perfect kind of distillations of an epistolary narrative and why they can work so well. Mm. But she mixed together a series of letters and a found manuscript and 
um, another found manuscript, and um, and the protagonist was a writer. Um, but it was playing around with these these Lovecraftian um, a, a history of kind of like Lovecraftian fiction and you know 20th century weird fiction, but just really put it together in a in amazing way. She's also playing around with like um, I think a lot of traditions of you know kind of Stephen King, New England as well, but. Um, She's really an amazing and very interesting writer. She has a, uh, I think, a, a wealth of ideas, and she brings a, a significantly advanced uh, a literary style to her work that I think really is good for the for the genre. Absolutely. I mean, she consistently um, every year um, blows me away. Um, for like three years running now, one of her novels has always been at the top of my lists, and I think you know for contemporary writers of the fantastic, she's one of the most consistent and interesting writers around right now. And uh, on that list, certainly, is uh, uh, Paolo Bacigalupi. I think the wind-up girl is going to be on the top of many people's lists this year. Well, obviously, I'm biased about that one, but I am, <laughs> I am, I've been in love with that novel since the day I read it in manuscript, and I'm just very pleased uh, with the kind of reception that's been getting ended up on all those best-of-the-year lists and um, like Time Magazine calling one of the 10 best books of the year, not just science fiction books, but... 10 Time best. Magazine? Time Magazine called it one of the 10 best books of the year. Wow. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's exactly what I said. <laughs> All um, right. And it was the only science fiction, well, the only adult science fiction novel on that list. So mm. I thought it was a really... Once again, it's really interesting to see what the mainstream notices mm-hmm. and and vice versa. And so... Um, I always thought that Wind Up Girl had that kind of crossover potential. You know, it's it's definitely one of those 20 seconds in the future, well, this one maybe 20 minutes in the future kind of vibe, but it's a very recognizable future. And uh, the, the third world setting um, in Thailand is, you know, the disparity between the, the, the wealthy at the, at the, right next to the poverty, abject poverty, is right there in your face in the book, and it's something that, you know, Western readers are consistently confronted with more and more. So I don't know. It's 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 a challenging book in that there's no easy answers, there's no easy villains. But I think that's one of the reasons why it's really engaging. And so I'm hoping people uh, um, find that one because it's uh, very near and dear to my heart. But uh, another another tra- mm-hmm. tradition or, or trend that I noticed last year um, is kind of a continuation of that that new weird but there's a, a a trio of of actually a quattro of novels about cities that just totally blew me away mm-hmm. um china mayville's the city in the city right i was going to mention that and jedediah barry's novel as well right right um and you know china stepping into the you know the present but still the fantastic and playing around with with you know the conceits of the mystery genre and the fantastic genre, um, I thought was just really, you know, a nice step for him. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's it's good to see that he's not just going to be doing New Corbis own volume 26, 27, and 28 mm-hmm. for the rest of his life. But um, And so The City in the City was definitely one of my favorite favorite books of this year. But um, another one that came out, um, The Palmancest by Cat Valente, Catherine mm. Valente, was another one of those weird... You know, weird cities. This one was about a city that you could only get to if you 
caught it in a sexually transmitted disease. And so there's this um, this group of characters, all of whom, you know, caught the disease um, in different ways and how their stories kind of intersect in the city. And and that city was very, very over-the-top strange. But it's still absolutely in this tradition of kind of examining the the ways that these urban environments really transform us and transform our societies just by the, I don't know, the architecture, the being next to people. It's just a really interesting look at things and just the, the conceit of a city that you catch as a sexually transmitted disease um, was kind of wonderful. Um, and, and she's an interesting writer, too. She's has a lot of uh, work, these uh, books about... Um, the, the kind of Arabian Nights books she's been publishing. I think that she's going to prove in the long run to be a, a you know, a cornerstone along with uh, somebody like Caitlin Kiernan, somebody who doesn't jump out of the headlines right away, but who in the long run proves to be an a, a important cornerstone. Of the Absolutely. I've, I've had the pleasure of sitting on a couple of panels with her at conventions, and she is an encyclopedia of interesting information, mm. the wealth of interesting information and her books totally reflect that. But um, another guy who um, is kind of an old hand at the uh, the new weird, as it were, uh, Jeff Vandermeer. Mm, the um, Vandermeer's had a great year this year, boy. Yeah, he had that novel come out right at the end of the year, Finch, mm-hmm. which um, I thought that was an interesting bookend to the to 2009, uh, China Mieville's The City in the City and Jeff Vandermeer's Finch. Um, um, because, like, Finch is another one that's playing around with the, the mystery and detective subgenre. Um, noir as uh, yeah, as noir. China calls it. And I like that idea, the noir Yeah, the noir And, um, yeah, it, it's set in his ambergris world again, but um, I think it's a really great example of Jeff uh, stretching himself in his, in his narratives because it's really challenging but really interesting. Now, another writer I thought whom I, I don't think, actually, this novel I don't think made it to the U.S. this year, and I hope it does, is uh, Lu Guo. Uh, she wrote a novel called UFO in Her Eyes, uh, which is about a UFO that appears and uh, kidnaps uh, an American in it who's visiting a, a village in China, and it's the whole series of papers and reports by all these bureaucratic agents and these village elders who are just trying to protect their part of the development. It's a really, really fascinating look, um, using a little bit of a science fiction trope to just break open a part of the world that, about which we know nothing, Chinese villages. It, it, nobody, uh, nobody in America knows anything about this stuff, at least how it's lived on the ground. And it's a really fascinating book and well worth digging out from your U.K. bookseller, I think. Okay, definitely. I'll be looking for that one. Um, another book that jumped out at me from the, um, from the city genre mm-hmm. was one that I published, that uh, Jay, Lake, uh, Jay Lake returned to uh, the, the city imperishable. Um, with the Madness Ad- of Flowers. Madness of Flowers. Yeah. And, I mean, Jay is an incredible writer, but mm. uh, and obviously I'm a bit biased, but I think that Madness of Flowers is really kind of uh, a pinnacle for him. It kind of really, he's matured as a writer so much from Trial of Flowers, and he's just stretching himself so hard in Madness as far as what he's tackling and what he's doing. Um, I I just hope that a lot of people end up finding that book, because it's, it's you know, right up there next to, you know, Kat Valente and China Mieville and Jeff, 
and Jeff Vandermeer, as far as I'm concerned. Now, a guy I, I met at the SF and SF whose book I really like was Michael Boatman, The Revenant Road. Uh, this is a really fun book about a guy who is, you know, comes into his supernatural heritage and has to deal with all these various supernatural entities. And he's a writer, a very famous um, best-selling writer, right. the character. And, it, and it's really a fun book. It's it's both engaging, you really like the character, and, that, and he brings this off um, quite well, the right, uh, Boatman does, and he's pursued by these undead critics. It's it's a scream, and that's, I think it's really another book worth, worth looking for. Well, right up there alongside that is um, Sandman Slim's Sandman Slim by Richard Cadry. Richard Cadry, oh yeah, another what a really fun good book. Yeah, which is a really fun <laughs> book. Uh-huh. And again, it's breaking down those genre boundaries. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's and that's it's, another one of your city books, I'm guessing, eh? Yeah, yeah. he's sort of in love with Los Angeles with uh-huh. that one. Yeah, I I love that that his vision of Los Angeles. I I spent uh, many years in Southern California, so I really that really uh, worked well for me. <laughs> and it was that you know a similar character. Um, pursued by supernatural forces and, you know, in search of this, this heritage of his. Um, and, and what really, you know, tickled my fancy is that at its heart it was a, it was a Richard Stark novel. Mm-hmm. It was a Parker novel, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, uh, anyway, yeah, he was, yeah. It was great to see Richard Cadry, you know, have that book hit this year, and um, I'm really looking forward to the, the follow-up novels that are coming. Now, um, this is the year that we, we, alas, lost Michael Crichton, but um, stepping, I think, into his shoes quite ably is a guy named Warren Fay, wrote a novel called Fragment that I would say was probably one of my favorite of this year. It's a very simple um, kind of uh, concept where there's an island out there that is developed on this earth that has developed a completely separate line of evolution. And upon which all the wildlife, and there's a lot of it, is really deadly and essentially toxic to, to human life. And it's what happens when you send a good-looking bunch of scientists on a boat there <laughs> to, 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 see what, to, to see what's there. It was really, I think, well-developed and surprisingly had some great characters and some really strong uh, science fiction thoughts. A little uh, remind me a little bit of... Uh, uh, Rob, uh, oh gosh, a novel called Bios, and I can't remember. I'm blanking on the author. Uh, he just wrote a spin, and um, he, he, uh, Robert Char- Charles, Robert Charles Wilson, Robert Charles Wilson. That's it. It's a little bit like Bios, only set on Earth, and it's a really great uh, novel. And and he comes up with some uh, wonderful. Uh, Monster characters, monsters that have characters, not just eating machines, but right. creatures that, you know, grow out of the environment and really have an interesting character. And in the end, his human characters are also really interesting. It's a quite a well done novel. Yeah, well, I mean, you mentioned the passing, the passing of Michael Crichton, and I, I kind of hope in my heart of hearts that um, the author who inherit that mantle um, is Kim Stanley Robinson. Mm. Nobody writes about, you know, science and the culture of science and its, you know, its immediate and direct impact, I think, better than Kim Stanley Robinson. Right. Now, what, what, what Stan doesn't do is the, you know, the big monster on the island, um, you know, scientists get eaten, science is bad and scary and, you know, should be distrusted. 
um, you know, Stan is kind of that opposite, mm-hmm. which is kind of why I hope he inherits that Michael Crichton, you know, impact. Because I mean, frankly, Michael Crichton was, I think, one of the one of the roots of the kind of distrust of you know modern modern science and you know, I think a lot of bad stuff can be laid at the feet of Michael Crichton. And likewise, I think a lot of good stuff can be laid at the feet of uh, Stan Robinson's work. Um, and he just had a new one come out in the U.K., uh, Galileo's Dream. What a wonderful novel. That was, that <laughs> was amazing. Coming out this next year in the U.S., along with uh, Connie Willis's Blackout, two wonderful novels of time travel. Absolutely. And, I mean, you know, Stan's worked with it in so many different subgenres and tropes of the field, and so seeing him doing it, a big time travel novel, but also one that kind of just utilizes all these, all these tools in his chest that he's been, you know, sharpening um, year after year. Um, Galileo's Dream was just a, a tour de force. I loved it. I've been speaking with the tour de force that is behind Nightshade Books. He's Jeremy Lassen. Thank you for speaking with me, Jeremy. Thanks a lot, Rick. That was great. And let's get together next week and talk about next year. How does that sound? That sounds wonderful. I look forward to it. I'll give you a call next week. All right. Thanks, Jeremy. Bye-bye. Bye. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.